before we read the seventh psalm, just to give you the summary of the psalms, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so that's a, a great summary statement of the entire book of Psalms, all 150 chapters. It's all about God's glory, his worth, and it's a reminder that no matter what we're going through, no matter what situation we're encountering, no matter what our circumstances are, God deserves our praise and he deserves our trust and confidence. And that's, that's what this entire book is about. And we see that as we go week to week to week. And so let's look at Psalm 7. It's a psalm for those being slandered. If you've ever been slandered, this psalm has something for you. So look what it says there in Psalm 7. Verse 1, it says, a shigion of David. Uh, scholars believe that's a musical term. Some people believe it means something like a cry of distress, uh, a, a, an emotional cry, if you will. They're not sure on that, but they believe it's a, a musical term to accompany this psalm being sung. A shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, verse 1, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I've done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Notice that, that longing there. Oh, let the wicked of the evil, uh, uh, the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish... The righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. Now look at that last phrase, the most high. A wonderful psalm, and we read all 17 verses because I think it helps to just see it all in one uh, tidy uh, package, reading, reading it all together. But as I said earlier, this is a psalm for those who are being slandered. And this is a really uh, should work in our lives in two ways. Number one, it should, it should be a warning for us not to slander. Slander is evil and wicked, and we'll see that uh, in a few moments. But also, it serves as a way for us to deal with life when people slander us, when people accuse us falsely or say uh, false things about us. And there's a proliferation of slander in our culture because of the proliferation of social media. Things like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and other things like that really 
have accelerated slander in our world. I mean, anybody can, that has a computer and an internet connection can write anything about anybody. And, and you've heard the phrase that uh, a lie can make it around the world while the truth's still putting his boots on. You heard that phrase? And, and someone can post a lie and it can be out there and the damage can be done even before the truth comes out or a person is vindicated. And there is much harm happening even in churches through the use of social media. So whether it be social media or whether it be good old-fashioned telephone or whatever, uh, slander is a reality that we need to, to be aware of. And this psalm helps us to deal with slander when it comes into our lives. So there are four headings uh, that I want to share with you uh, about slander and about being slandered and give you some some sort of hooks to hold on to as we work our way through this chapter. First of all, I want to say a word about the reality of slander. The reality of slander. So wait, how do you know that's what this psalm was about? Well, because look, look at the description in the little letters right before verse 1. A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So he's, he's feeling attacked as we read through the psalm. It's clear he feels attacked by the wicked. And it mentions there in those small letters that, that he's a, being attacked by the words of Cush. So the words are what's attacking him. Slander. He's being slandered and he feels that and he goes to God in the midst of his slanders. That's what this psalm is all about. Now, we don't have any record of Cush the Benjaminite in the historical writings. Uh, We do know that there are other Benjaminites uh, who were loyal to King Saul. And you know the story that Saul was the first king of Israel and uh, after uh, he disobeyed God. God said, hey, your kingdom's coming to an end. I'm going to raise up a new king, a man after my own heart. And he did that. But you know that when God was raising up David, Saul became uh, jealous of David and tried to kill him and, and, and tried to uh, hunt him down. And there was this, this, this tension between the house of Saul and David. Even after David became king, there were followers of the house of Saul still around, uh, Benjaminites, that Saul was a Benjaminite, who, uh, who treated David uh, with disrespect and treated him poorly. And so probably that's what's happening here. Cush is, uh, ele- uh, has given his allegiance to King Saul. Maybe King Saul's dead by this time, but this, this man, Cush, still doesn't like David. He's defending his tribe, defending the tribe of Benjamin. And he is saying things about David that are evil, that are wicked. And he's, he's clearly trying to tear David down with his words. And, and David mentions the words of Cush and he says, I'm being attacked. I'm being attacked by the wicked. So we see here the reality of slander. We need to understand, as I just said, that slander is a reality in our lives and in our culture today. So what are some ways that you and I can experience slander? Well, we can deal with slander from individuals, right? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus talking to Christians. He makes an interesting comment in Ephesians 4. The entire chapter is about the new man. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's saying, listen, now that you're a Christian, you ought to act different. Don't act like your old self. Act like the new man that God has made you. And he deals with the issue of slander and gossip in Ephesians chapter 4. Look what he says in verse 31. Again, writing to Christians here. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So he's saying when someone has, has hurt you, you don't resort to slander to tear them down. You forgive each other. You reconcile that relationship. And he's talking here to Christians. So, hey, question. Can Christians sin with their mouths? Absolutely. Do Christians sin with their mouths? Yes. Gossip, slander, you name it. And, and we see here that it is possible that we can be slandered by individuals. Now, probably everyone in this room has had someone say something about you that is unkind and untrue. And you know it hurts, right? It hurts. I mean, it, can, it can really, uh, it can ruin lives and it, and it can really affect you. And, and Paul here is warning against that individual slandering of one another. Secondly, we can deal with slander from a secular culture. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. I love this verse. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we need to understand, and he goes on to talk about the, the wisdom of the Greek culture later on in that chapter. You need to understand that as we preach Jesus, as we hold high the cross of Jesus Christ, the secular culture that does not believe is going to ridicule us for our beliefs. They're going to ridicule us for preaching and teaching and clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because to those who are perishing, it seems foolishness. How can a crucified Jewish man do anything for anybody, right? They don't understand that crucified Jewish man was the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he died bearing the sins of the world bearing the wrath of God in our place, dying for our sins. And then after that, he didn't stay dead. Early on the third day, he rose from the grave, right? I mean, I'm, I'm getting ready for Easter Sunday. I'm getting, I'm telling you, excited about this, all right? They, they don't know the rest of the story. They don't understand how it all fits together. And so they're going to ridicule the cross. And we need to understand that as we uh, hold to the cross as precious, the, as the cornerstone of our faith, that we're going to be ridiculed. They're going to slander us and say all things about us falsely. If you look at the first century church, they were slandered by the Roman Empire and slandered by the Greek culture and slandered by the Jewish religious leaders because of their belief in Jesus. And so we deal with slander from individuals. We deal with slander from a secular culture. It's amazing the things you can turn on your TV and see people in the media uh, f- people that are famous, athletes, you, what you hear them saying about Christians. It's just amazing uh, the slander that happens there. We also deal with slander from enemies of the gospel. These are just folks that don't want the gospel to spread. They, they are enemies of Christ. They don't want to see the kingdom expand. And there are so many verses on this. Uh, turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at just a couple of books. And by the way, I, you know, I, I go pretty fast, teach pretty fast. So if you have a question, just jot it down in your notes and we get through. I'll take some questions and you can ask me then. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. This is the last beatitude. 
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, now watch this, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. What's that? Slander. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, get ready. People are going to persecute you. They're going to utter all kind of things about you falsely. They're going to say things that are intended to tear you down. False things, untrue things. And he said, they're going to do it on my account because of me. They're enemies of me, he says. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then turn over to 1 Peter near the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2. in verse 20. 1 Peter 2 verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, Peter's saying here, you know, if you get, if you get in trouble for doing something dumb, that's on you. All right? Uh, he's not talking about that kind of uh, hardship. Look, look what he says in the next verse. This is the kind of hardship he's, he's really talking about in, verse, in the next verse or next phrase. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So there are people that suffer because they're foolish. They go through hard times because they're foolish. They, in other words, they bring it on themselves. But there are others who are doing the right thing. They're trying to serve God. They're trying to follow Jesus. And because of that, they suffer. And that's called persecution. Look what he says about it in the next verse. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus was persecuted. He suffered for doing the right thing. And so he gives us an example as as to how we walk through that when we're being persecuted, how we ought to respond. And look what it says in the next verse. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, now watch this, we'll get to some of this a little bit later. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not return slander for slander. Everybody see that? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so there is a a suffering that happens when we are following Jesus and people may use their words, slander, to tear us down, to revile us. And Jesus walked through the same thing. So we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. And then since you're in 1 Peter, look over in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, hey Christians, expect to be slandered by enemies of the cross. So that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when you are slandered, When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evils. Here's what he's saying. When you are being slandered, keep doing the right thing so that it will become utterly ridiculous for them to keep on slandering you. I mean, your life is so above reproach, shining forth the goodness and grace of Christ, that if people keep on with their attacks, they're going to look foolish. That's what he's saying here. And so 
We, we need to understand the reality of slander. We deal with slander from individuals. We deal with slander from a secular culture. We deal with slander from the enemies of the gospel. We even deal with slander from the accuser. You know, the Bible calls the devil the accuser over in Revelation chapter 12. And here's what the devil loves to do. You ready? He loves to dig up your past and cause you to relive it in your heart and mind so that you are paralyzed by the guilt of what you've done. And maybe there are even some here tonight that you just can't get past your past. And it's just, it's just always there, forefront of your mind and heart. And Satan loves to whisper in your ear and remind you of how great of a sinner you are, what you did, how you're not worthy to to serve Jesus, You're not, you, you shouldn't be sitting in church, who are you kidding? I mean, those kind of things, right? The devil loves to accuse. And you say, well, wait, is it slander if the devil is saying things to you that are true? I mean, he's saying things about your life that are true. How is that slander? It's slander because if you're a Christian, those things have been buried in the sea of forgetfulness. God doesn't see them anymore. So for the devil to bring them up, that's slander, He's calling something uh, relevant in your life that's been buried, forgiven, washed away, right? He's accusing to paralyze you, to keep you from effectiveness in your Christian life, to to withhold joy from your Christian journey. And and we need to understand that the devil loves to accuse us. But it says in Revelation that the saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They knew they were in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. The blood of Jesus had washed away their sins and by the word of their testimony. In other words, uh, yeah, uh, accuser of the brethren, yet yeah, uh, devil, uh, that's who I used to be, but you need to understand that's not who I am anymore. Jesus has changed me. That's been forgiven. I'm on a new trajectory now. So what you are saying about my life is slander. It's wrong. You're, you're, you're accusing me of something that has been buried in a sea of forgetfulness. So move on. I am in Christ. Isn't that good? But we need to understand that the devil loves to accuse. So we need to understand the reality of slander. I mean, if you're just around long enough, you're going to be slandered by somebody. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said it one of my favorites in the way only he could say it. If God was slandered in Eden, was God slandered in Eden, the Garden of Eden? Who slandered him? Satan. How did, how did Satan slander God? What did he say about God that was untrue? Has God really said? I mean, did God really give you that commandment? Will you really die? You'll not die. I mean, God said you'll die if you eat that fruit, but I mean, yeah, come on. That's kind of harsh. You'll not die. Uh, He's trying to withhold his goodness from you. He's afraid you'll become like him. He he doesn't want that to happen. And, And so the devil was slandering God in the Garden of Eden. So here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. If God was slandered in Eden, we shall surely be maligned in this land of sinners. That's a true statement, isn't it? Gird up your loins. I like that. Get ready, buddy. Ye children of the resurrection, for this fiery trial awaits you all. So slander is a reality. It awaits us all. And here's the deal. And this is why Psalm 7 is so important and relevant and practical. Slander is very dangerous. It's not harmless. It's dangerous. This quote from James Montgomery Boyce really helped to show you 
the danger of slander, particularly in the context of David's life. He writes, slander like this was a, was a serious matter for one in David's position. It was not trivial. We tend to regard most verbal accusations as unimportant, at least when they are directed at someone else. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me, we say. How many of you ever said that? How many of you taught your children that? It's just not true. I'm sorry, not true. It may help them get through a hard time, but it's not true because over in James it says the tongue is like a deadly poison in a forest fire that destroys. Right? So things can come from our mouths that can destroy. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me, we say. But lies are not always inconsequential, even for us. And they were certainly not a matter of an unimportance for King David. The king was the chief administrative and legislative officer for Israel. He was responsible for seeing that right was upheld and that justice was dispensed. An accusation that attacked his integrity undermined the moral basis of the kingdom. It was a first step to moral anarchy and possibly armed rebellion. And that's what... uh, um, Absalom did. His son, remember Absalom? He, he would catch people at the gate and say, hey, David's too busy for you. He's not going to handle your issue. You bring your issue to me. I'll help you with your issue. And he began to slander David until he had the hearts of the people. Then he rebelled against David. So slander was, was very dangerous and is very dangerous. False things, accusations can ruin people's lives, can undermine people's credibility and integrity, can hurt Uh, families and businesses and churches and organizations and cultures, uh, political races. Can I get an amen? I'm telling you, slander is a dangerous, dangerous thing. So we see here in Psalm 7, back in Psalm 7, the reality of slander. It's real. So how do we deal with it? All right. Well, look at the second heading, the refuge from slander. We've talked about the reality of slander. Now let's talk about the refuge from slander. Look back with me in Psalm 7. Look in verse 3. O Lord my God, if I've done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground. Lay my glory in the dust. Say, what is, what is David doing here? David is proclaiming, this is in your notes, he's proclaiming his innocence in the matter. David's not saying he's, he's guiltless. He's not saying he's without sin. But he's saying, in this matter, whatever Cush was saying about him, he's saying, he's wrong. I'm innocent in this matter. What he's saying is false. I have integrity in this. Uh, I have righteousness in this. I'm innocent in this. So he proclaims his innocence in the matter. And so that's tough, right? Cush is saying all these wicked things, these, these untrue things, and he's innocent and he knows it. So what do you do when people are slandering you and you're innocent and you know it? How do you handle that? Well, look at the next phrase. David recognized that God was the one that could truly help him. God was the one that could truly help him. Look what it says in verse one. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Now that phrase, take refuge, is a perfect tense verb. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it's really cool because the perfect tense was used to communicate a past event with ongoing implications. So what David is saying is this. Hey, there was a time in my past 
when I took refuge in you, I became a follower of you. I placed my faith in you. I, I hid under your wings. You were my fortress. You were my shield. And the implications of that are going on in my life today. You were my shield way back then. You are my shield today. So David is saying, I take refuge in you. You are the one that can truly help. Now look what he says in verse 10 of chapter 7. My shield is with who? With God, who saves the upright in heart. So notice what David resorts to. He doesn't uh, call the, the local media around and say, okay, here's what they said. We got to get a rebuttal out there. Uh, you know, or let me send a few of my people to say false things about them. No, he's saying, God, you're the one that can handle this. Because listen to me, when someone slanders you, the damage is already done, right? You can play damage control, but there's still damage there. How do you deal with that? The damage and, you know, the, the evil, the wicked, how do you deal with that? He said, I go to God with it. He is my shield. He's been my shield in the past. He's still my shield today. And he says there in uh, uh, verse uh, 10, my shield is with God. So, so our God that we know personally through Jesus Christ is the refuge from slander. In other words, we are to go to God in the midst of that hardship, the refuge from slander. Now here's the third thing. I want you to see the righteous judge of slanderers. We've talked about the reality of slander and the refuge from slander, but now I want to just talk for a few moments about the righteous judge of slanderers. Slanderers will have their day in court. <laughs> they will give an account for those words. And the Bible is clear on this. Um, look at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. In other words, let all the world see that you are judging these, these slanderers. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, he says. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. And so what is David doing here? He's doing something that we ought to model. Here's what we ought to do when we're slandered. When, when we are slandered, we are to leave it in God's hands. Is that what it said in first Peter about Jesus? He left us an example to follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He entrusted himself to God. And so when you are slandered, leave it in God's hands. P.C. Craigie, the New Testament scholar, says this, whereas a false accusation may deceive and convince our fellow human beings, it cannot deceive God. I like that. So God knows the truth, right? He knows what's up. He knows that, 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 that those things are untrue and mean-spirited. He knows who you really are. He sees everything. And so those slanderous words aren't going to fool God. And here's the deal about leaving it in God's hands. And if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, I want you to hear this. He can and will deal with it better than you. Turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. Look what it says in verse 17. 
Romans is a rich book of, of doctrinal content and depth. And then in uh, chapter 12, he begins to draw out the practical implications of being in Christ and in the body of Christ. And he deals with life in the body of Christ. And look what he says to these believers in Rome, starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? And pretty powerful. But listen to me. This doesn't make our flesh feel very good. Because the flesh wants to get back at folks, right? We want people to feel the hurt we feel. We want to get them back. I mean, listen to me. I love uh, Westerns. I, I love Westerns. Because Westerns, the, the bad guy always gets it in the end, right? You know, he's always mean and he comes into town and he's, you know, uh, overthrows the local law enforcement and he's ruling and ruling the town and he's mean and cruel and, and then the good guy comes into town and they have a showdown and the good guy gets him, right? And it, doesn't it feel good that, you know, that oh, it gets him in the end, right? Um, we, we like that. And, and so our flesh wants to retaliate, Right? And and what happens is we try to take matters into our own hands when we should understand that God deals with it better than we can. Listen to me. When you try to take matters into your own hands, no matter how good it feels in in your flesh, you're going to make a mess of things. And so am I. God can and will handle it better than you. So when you're slandered, You leave it in his hands. You take it to him. God, this is yours. You deal with it. You know the truth. You see it all. You deal with this issue. Now, while we leave it in God's hands, we can pray, this is in your notes, for God's justice to be brought to bear on the situation. That's what David's doing back in Psalm 7. He says there in Psalm 7, verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. God, would you rise up and deal with this? Would you deal with this wickedness? Would you deal with this slander? Would you deal with this falsehood? God, would you take care of it? He he prayed for God's justice. Look what it says in verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So he's saying God is the judge. God will take care of it in his time, in his way. Now, there are three things we notice about God's justice here. First of all, the fury of God's wrath. Notice there it says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. That's war language, isn't it? And it's saying, listen to me, God in his judgment will bring his, his wrath and fury to bear on the wicked. That day's coming, either in this life or at the great white throne of judgment. His wrath and fury is going to be poured out upon wickedness. So God's going to take care of it. The fury of God's wrath. But secondly, notice the futility of evil. The futility of evil. Look what it says in verse 14. Behold, I love this. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. 
His mischief returns on his own head and on his own skull is violence to sins. In other words, if a person is wicked, if a person is ungodly, eventually they're going to back themselves into a corner and they're going to be their own undoing. Right? Because God lets a person reap what they what? So, that's, a, that's a, one of the, the laws of, of humanity. You reap what you sow. And if someone is evil and wicked, eventually they're going to reap the consequences of that behavior. Because that's how God set it into the universe. So God's going to deal with it. He's going to bring justice to bear. The, they're going to reap what they sow. It's futile, futility of evil. But then notice there is hope for sinners. Listen to me. Everybody look at me for a moment. When, when someone is slandering you, you need to understand... No matter how mean-spirited, how evil it is, there's hope for them. Because look what he says in verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. So what's the flip side of that statement? If a man does repent, he can escape God's judgment, right? Isn't that what he's saying? And so repentance is available to the wicked. Now they may choose to repent and turn to God and seek his forgiveness and to follow him, or they may turn their back to God. But we need to understand there's hope for the sinner, And when we pray for the slanderer, yes, we want God's justice to be brought to bear on the situation, but we also want to know there's hope for them. We want to pray that they would be safe. And so this leads to a really good question that's going to surface through our study of the Psalms, because a lot of the Psalms are called imprecatory Psalms, which means uh, the psalmist is praying for God's direct judgment on somebody, praying for their harm or their ill. So here's the question. How do we pray for God's justice while desiring that sinners be saved? Isn't that a good question? How do we pray for God's justice while desiring that sinners be saved? Because when someone is wicked and evil and ungodly, we want them to meet Jesus, right? Because guess what? They got the same problem we have. We're sinners saved by God's grace. And and so we want to see people saved... But we also want to see God rectify the situation, don't we? We want to see God make it right. So how do you keep both of those things in view in your prayer life and as you think about justice? Well, let me give you a little framework to understand justice. There there are two types of justice that the Bible refers to. The first is ultimate or heavenly justice. Ultimate or heavenly justice. One day those that have not turned to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, will stand before the great white throne of judgment and be judged according to the things written in the books about their life. And they won't be able to explain it away. They won't be able to run from that moment. They will be judged for those sins for eternity. Justice ultimately will be served. By the way, it's one of the reasons I believe in, in God. I, I believe that theism is, one of, is, is the viable option for humanity because, um, because of what's called the moral, um, the moral argument for God's existence. There, there's a moral framework in our universe. Where does that come from? If there's a moral framework, if we all have a sense of fairness, um, then that means that there, there's a moral lawgiver that says there are things that are right and wrong. And even people that say there's no such thing as absolute truth, they're, they're good saying that until you go and steal their car. Right? People say, they're not saying absolute truth. We'll take their car and see what they say. They'll say, that's not right. Right? 
There is absolute truth. There's a moral framework in our universe. You know why? There's a moral lawgiver. And listen to this. If there's no God, Hitler got away with it. Right? Killed millions and millions of, of, of Jews and other folks. Caused a, war, a world war that, 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 that killed so many and fractured so many lives and nations. Took the easy way out. He committed suicide, right? He got away with it. No justice. He didn't go before the Nuremberg court like some other Nazi leaders did. He got away with it if there's no God. But guess what? There is a God. And Hitler didn't get away with anything. It's all been recorded in a book. And he'll stand before God one day. Judgment, ultimate judgment is coming. All right? So that's one category of justice. Everybody got that? Justice will eventually be served. When the dust settles on human history, God will, uh, will carry out perfect justice for humanity and the universe. Everybody got that? That's ultimate, heaven, what I call heavenly justice. The second type of justice is what I call limited earthly justice. Limited earthly justice. In other words, that's when uh, justice is carried out for wrongdoing here on this earth. People experience the consequences of their sin here on this earth. Now, how are we supposed to think about ultimate heavenly justice and limited earthly justice? Here's a statement I've I've coined to, to help you to think through this. We should love sinners and desire that they find Jesus so that they can escape the ultimate justice of God. Right? On the on the day of judgment, we want to see as many people as possible covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? We don't want to see people standing before God, the great wife under judgment, not robed in the righteousness of Christ. Because if that's the case, if they stand before Jesus on that day and they're not saved, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire, separated from God. Place of conscious torment and wrath. An awful end. So we don't want to see people experience that. We want to see people saved and ready for judgment day because they've been saved by Jesus. So we should love sinners and desire that they find Jesus so they can escape the ultimate justice of God. At the same time, now this is where it gets interesting, at the same time, we should pursue and desire earthly justice. So Micah 6.8 says, what does the Lord require of us? That we love mercy, uh, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God, right? That we that we want to see the right thing happen. That's what Christ followers, we want to see God's kingdom come here on this earth in a greater and greater way. So we want to see, we want to see uh, evil stopped and we want to see the right thing flourishing in our world and in our culture. So we should pursue and desire earthly justice. And look what it says over in Romans 13. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then, what, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God. 
an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So that's saying that we as Christians should, of course, desire for people to be made right with God so they are ready for judgment day. They're saved, they're covered under the blood of Jesus. But we also want to see wrongdoers um, punish so that wrongdoing will not prevail in our culture. That's one reason Christians ought to be the absolute uh, best supporters for law enforcement and for military. Because God has ordained that our law enforcement, our armed forces, they carry out God's justice against evildoers. It's what they're there for. So we support them and pray for them. And, and, and we're their biggest fans as Christians, right? Because while we want to see people saved and, and ready for judgment day, we also want to see justice carried out on this earth. And our law enforcement, our judicial system, our armed forces, they are, the Bible says in Romans 13, they are instruments in God's hands to carry out justice against the wrongdoer. So let me illustrate how this works. Let's just say that uh, someone in our community uh, is found guilty of murder. They've murdered someone and they have been found guilty of that murder. There's overwhelming evidence that they murdered someone else. And they go to jail and uh, one of our staff members goes and visits with this person in jail and they're talking to them about their life and about their sin and about Jesus and about salvation and grace and forgiveness and all of this stuff. And, and say one of our staff members shares the gospel and this person who just committed murder gives their life to Jesus. They're saved. Wouldn't that be glorious? That's what we ought to do, right? That's why Jesus said that there's a blessing for those that go and visit in prison. So you share the gospel, a person gets saved. Now, is that person, say they're truly converted, truly redeemed, truly born again, are they ready for judgment day? Are they? Yeah. Their sins have been washed away, even murder, right? You say, well, I never murdered anybody. Well, Jesus said, if you've hated someone in your heart, it's like murder. You know what I'm looking at right now? A bunch of murderers. And you got one talking to you, right? According to the standards of Jesus. And so the gospel shared, this, this man gives his life to Jesus. He's saved, his sins are washed away. He's forgiven, he's transformed. He's going to heaven when he dies. He's ready for judgment day. Should he get out of jail? No, no. Because our judicial system, our court system, our law enforcement system has a system to protect society, to punish wrongdoers, to deter others from doing the same things. And so we ought to, we ought to desire for that justice to be carried out. That man's saved. God will be with him through the whole process. God can even use him in the, in the prison system. Even if he's on death row, God can use him in a mighty way. But I don't believe that person should get out of jail just because they made a profession of faith in Christ. They're ready for ultimate justice, but earthly, limited justice still has to be carried out. Does that make sense? All right. So is there forgiveness? Yes. Are there consequences? Yes. There are consequences. So... That helps you understand. And so, Wade, you say, Wade, uh, you know, how should I pray for evil folks that are making my life hard or threatening me or whatever? Pray that they get saved and pray that God will deal with it, that justice will be served, preferably here in this life, right? So that the wrong behavior will stop and you don't have to go through it anymore. It's okay to pray for that. 
That's how David's praying. Hey, if they repent, they can be saved. If they don't, they're going to experience your judgment. But if they repent, they can be saved. But Lord, would you just, would you arise? Would you bring your justice to bear? I think what David's saying here is, God, would you move so that Cush would stop slandering me? That's what he's saying. And so we see here the righteous judge of slanderers. We leave it in God's hands. He deals with it better than we can. But let me give you one final thing, and I'll take some questions and we'll be through. I want you to see the rejoicing of the slandered. This psalm really ends on an interesting note, really extraordinary note. Look what it says in Psalm 7, verse 17. Here's how he closes it. His life has been majorly affected by Cush, his slander. And look how he ends the, the psalm. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. What do we learn from this? In light of God's character and God's help, we should be grateful. God's righteous. He sees it all. He'll deal with it in his, in his way, in his timing. That's who God is. He'll help us through it. It's in his hands. So we should be grateful. Notice what he says there. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. He's a God of righteousness. He'll, he'll take care of it. And I will give him thanks. Aren't you glad that you can take hardship, you can take slander even and put it in God's hands and he'll take care of it? You can be grateful for that. Secondly, when we are slandered, we should praise the most high God who reigns over all. Look what he says in the end of this verse. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. Now look how he ends the, the, the whole psalm. The most high. El Elyon is that Hebrew word there. The Lord most high. He reigns over it all. So yes, there are people who slander us. Yes, there are people that do evil things and come against us. But guess what? God reigns over them. God is in control. He hasn't gotten down off his throne. He's still calling the shots. You can flat trust him with your life. And because that is true, you ought to give him the praise that he deserves, right? He says there, uh, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So guess what? Even when you're going through difficult times, you can be grateful and you can be full of praise, just like David was. He was being slandered. It hurt. It was wrong. He was walking in in integrity. And yet, he could give God thanks. And he could praise God because he he knew God was ultimately in control of the slander. And so just let me give you just a real practical suggestion. Next time you deal with something hurtful, someone has said something about you that's unkind or untrue or whatever, I want to encourage you to, to go to Psalm 7 right over there over your Bible, write Psalm for the slandered or something like that. And, and go back to that Psalm and just take those words and make them your own and, and, and pray them back to God. And I believe that you'll find a measure of comfort by following David's footsteps as he walked through an issue of slander. It's real, it's destructive, but God will take care of us and we'll take care of it ultimately. So we leave it in his hands. Hey, and by the way, just one other application. Since we see how destructive it is, don't do it. All right? Don't do it. Don't say things about other people behind their back uh, or to their face that are untrue or unkind or destructive. Um, just don't, that's not right. Don't do that. 